eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, what does it mean when a product is discounted because it's been refurbished? Then, ways you can be more influential with everyone in your life. You know, we've all heard about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. I believe in the platinum rule, and the platinum rule is do unto others as they would have done unto them. Also, if you have old vinyl LPs, there's a way to make them sound great again. And food secrets everyone can use, like how to make pasta taste better at home, and the magic of a perfect grilled cheese sandwich. If you toast the inside of the bread, the cheese melts faster and more evenly. Some of the, if you do it in a nonstick pan, some of the cheese pours over the edge and crisps up in the pan in a special way. I think toasting both sides of the bread with butter in the pan is the je ne sais quoi we're looking for. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. Have you ever had the opportunity to buy something refurbished at a discount? Usually it's electronics. Maybe you decided to skip it and buy a new one because you worried that refurbished meant you were buying something that was defective and had to be fixed. Well, not always. Surprisingly, only about 5% of returned electronics are defective, according to a survey. Some refurbished laptops and other products haven't even been touched by the person who purchased them. 
They've been returned because a clerk nicked the box during shipping, or maybe the buyer just didn't like the color. When there's a true defect, retailers such as Best Buy send the item to an authorized repair center or back to the manufacturer for inspection, repair, and repackaging. And the discounts on those refurbished products can be between 15 and 50%. It's probably best to stick to the name brands and reputable retailers like Amazon, Apple, and Best Buy when buying refurbished products. But at least now you know what refurbished really means, and it may just be a good deal. And that is something you should know. You probably don't think about it all that much, but every day you're required to influence people. Your kids, your co-workers, your boss, your friends. You exert influence to get them to do things or to give you things or behave in a certain way. You have to be influential to be effective. And since we don't necessarily think about it all that much, we don't typically have a plan or a formula to be influential. But if you did, if you did have a plan, you would probably be more influential. And here to help you be more influential is Shelley Rose Chevray. Shelley is an international expert on influencing and persuasion, and she's author of the book Words That Change Minds. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Mike. Since we're all trying to influence people every day, what is it that you see when you observe people? What is it that you see people do wrong that makes them less effective and less influential? You know, what people generally do wrong is they focus on getting the thing that they want, and it's almost as if they're the only person in the equation. In fact, there's two people. So although it's important to be clear on what your goal is, when you want to persuade and influence someone, it's also important to figure out or to help find out what the other person wants because there's both of you there. And thirdly, going to meet them where they are at what I call their bus stop. It's very hard to persuade somebody if you are thinking the way you do, feeling the way you do, and kind of trying to get somebody to come over here without you going to get them. So we do need to figure out by listening in a very particular way what's important to that person, how they think, how they make decisions, and then we're going to know how to talk to them to be persuasive. So give me an example of of how that would work. Let's imagine that Susie wants to convince her husband, Bobby, that there's something wrong with the car. What Susie usually does is she says, Bobby, there's something wrong with the car. And Bobby isn't convinced because Bobby needs to decide for himself whether or not he thinks there's something wrong with the car. So just simply saying, listen, there's something wrong with the car. I heard a noise. We have to take it to the garage. And then getting annoyed when Bobby doesn't do that, to be able to have an impact with Bobby, knowing that Bobby doesn't want to be told what to do, and that's one of the triggers I talk about, is you then go to where Bobby is thinking and saying, hey, Bobby, I heard a weird noise with the car, and I suspect there's something wrong with it. Can you check it out? So the formula is you offer that person information and invite them to decide for themselves. What most of us just do is tell other people what to think. <laughs> yeah, we do, don't we? we, we here, here's what I think, and you should think the same thing. That's right. Here's what you should think, and here's what you should do. Now, uh, chances are, in couples... People don't like to be told what to do. You know, partners don't want the other partner to tell them what to do and what to think. And it's so frustrating because one partner will say, well, 
it's obvious. Why doesn't she just get it? Or why doesn't he understand? And the thing is, the more assertive you are, the more resistance you get. Whereas if you're invitational, the more likely your partner is to actually consider what you want. So I have a problem. I'd like to talk to you about it. Would it be okay if I told you what's going on and get your input? Like you don't have to sound like you're begging and pleading. You just need to invite the person to decide for themselves. And so isn't this sort of manipulating people? You know, a a lot of people are worried that influence and persuasion is manipulation, but there's a difference between manipulating somebody and influencing them. If you're manipulating them, you don't really care what their goal is or what they want. You just want what you want. When you're trying to have an impact or a positive impact or influence, you have to take the other person's goal uh, in mind because otherwise it just doesn't work. People have radar. They know when they're being... uh, Manipulated, sometimes not right at the moment, but sometime later you go, I just don't trust that person. And it's because we have radar for manipulation. It's interesting. I know you say that being enthusiastic can actually hurt your ability to influence people if you're too enthusiastic. Enthusiasm is good in and of itself, but if you sort of put it like a sheet over top of the other person too, then it doesn't work. But if you can be enthusiastic for yourself, you can say, I love this movie. I thought it was the best one all year. And I wonder what you'd think about it. Would, I'm curious as to whether or not you would like it or not. That's an invitation. That's okay for me to be enthusiastic, but I can't decide for you what you're going to think. So if you say, oh, this is a great book, you're going to love it. Well, unless you have absolutely impeccable credibility with that person and they trust your judgment, they're going to get a bit skeptical and say, well, you know, I'll read it. Maybe I'll read it. Maybe I won't. But It's not just because the other person told you you're going to love it, that you're going to love it. It does seem very often that people in trying to influence other people are maybe maybe a little too subtle. You know, they use body language or they they kind of hint at what they want rather than be direct and, and say what they want. And you say that often doesn't work, often backfires. So talk about that. So there's a group of people who are not very good at noticing or hearing body language or voice tone. So if you say to them something like, all right, they think you said all right, because they didn't hear the the frustration in your voice tone. Or if you're looking upset, they don't necessarily pick it up because they're focused on the content. And all of us do this at different times. There are some people who do it more often than others. And if you've tried hinting and it doesn't work, then... You need to be a little bit more uh, direct about how you're feeling. Explain the platinum and the golden rules of communication, because that, that plays into this whole idea of influence. Well, you know, we've all heard about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. I think that fits for a lot of situations. But in terms of interpersonal communication, everybody's kind of different. What works for you doesn't necessarily work for somebody else. So... I believe in the platinum rule, and the platinum rule is do unto others as they would have done unto them. So uh, here's an example. Let's say I like to have lots of choices in where we go to a restaurant. So when we're talking about where we're going to a restaurant, I might say, hey, there's this option, there's that restaurant, there's the Italian, there's the Chinese, there's the Greek restaurant. And my partner may not like to have any options at all. My partner may like to go to the same restaurant over and over again. So if I want to persuade my partner, I'm going to have to use the language that my partner uses. So instead of saying, well, look, there's all these choices. We could go somewhere new. 
I might need to say, hey, you know, you said you really like spaghetti. I know a place where you can get the spaghetti that you might just like. It might be worthwhile testing out. You don't say, let's go to somewhere new and different when you know a person wants to do more or less the same kind of thing. And that's an example of paying attention to what's important to the other person. Often when we're trying to influence people, we're trying to get them to make a choice. You know, do you want this one or that one? Do you want to go here or go there? And I know I've read or heard that that choice is a problem, that you would think giving people lots of choices, well, then they're bound to find something they want. But in fact, when you give people too many choices, you improve the likelihood that they choose nothing because you've overwhelmed them with too many choices. That's exactly true. And, and the traditional research says that it's because there are too many things and a person can't make up their mind. But if we go even deeper into our unconscious mind, if it's not clear what we want, like we have no criteria for choosing, and B, we have no procedure for choosing, too many options is instant overwhelm. And most people don't think about how they make decisions. They just either decide or they don't decide. And so if you're trying to persuade someone, it's useful for you to think about, A, what's important to them, what do they want, and B, how are they most likely to make a decision? And someone who is looking for something that is similar to what they already have, what's going to help them make a decision is if you can point out how what you're proposing is similar. But isn't it just human nature? When you ask someone what kind of ice cream you want and you give them 31 different flavors to choose from, it's going to take a lot more work to get them to choose one than if you said, would you like chocolate or vanilla? Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's, here's the, the trap, though. Sometimes if you say, would you like cho- chocolate and vanilla, and you have one of those people who doesn't want to be closed into a box where someone else chooses, they'll say, hey, listen, I like strawberry. But at least then you get a decision. Because if we don't have strawberry, then your, your choice is to not choose, but, but that's a choice. But it's a choice, and the person will decide. Like, some people don't want to be boxed into that two-choice two thing. And in traditional sales technology, there's often these techniques, like the alternative clothes, either this or either that, or here's what our most popular flavor is. And if people are what we call internal, that means they like to decide for themselves based on what's important to them, they don't go with the flow. So it works if somebody is more easily influenced by what other people think, but if they aren't, doesn't work. So you have to find out, in this case, what's important to that person and how they would know they made the right decision. So when you're choosing a flavor of ice cream, what do you go for? And a person might say, well, I want something new and different from what I've had before, or I always like the same thing. You know, you have to listen to those things. And, and what we don't do is we don't ask enough of the right questions to find out how does somebody decide? How do they make judgment calls? Are they looking for new and different? Are they looking for same? Are they looking for better? Right, because everybody's different. We are talking about influence and how to influence other people. My guest is Shelley Rose Chavre, and her book is titled Words That Change Minds. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that, that could be a costly move. Nerd Wallet, you've heard of Nerd Wallet. Nerd Wallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So, if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. A free flight, room upgrades, who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. 
Nerd Wallet, finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, it just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. So, Shelley, we're talking about the importance of understanding how people decide and what they prefer. And it made me think, I used to know a guy who would eat dinner at the same restaurant every day. But not only that, because that in itself would drive me crazy, but he ordered the same thing every single time. Every time. He has what we call a sameness pattern in the context of food. And what we don't realize is that these patterns that I'm talking about, sameness and internal and whether somebody wants something new and different, they're not personality patterns. They're contextual. So he may want the same food in the same restaurant when he's at work, but when he's on holiday, he might like to experiment. It, or he might like to have the same thing. We don't know because these tendencies are contextual. We do different things at different times. And that's one of the challenges in human communication. Not only are people different than me, they do different things at different times. And so trying to stuff somebody like a round peg into a square hole doesn't work. I would imagine that a lot of your ability to influence or to get someone to make a decision or what, whatever it is you're trying to do has a lot to do with the influencer. I'm, I'm much more comfortable... When, when certain people ask me something than when other people who aren't maybe so sure of themselves. Are, there's something about the, the persona of the influencer that makes decision-making easier, right? That's absolutely true. Like, you wouldn't want to decide to work with somebody if you didn't believe they were credible in the field that you, they were proposing you should do work with them. Um, if somebody comes across as unsure, well, they feed doubt in the mind of the other person. Or if somebody comes across as arrogant, um, they see defensiveness in the other person. And so it's really important to think about how do I establish credibility? Secondly, how do I establish trust? Like what is going to enable this person to know that they can count on me? What are the things I need to do? And there's kind of a formula for, for trust. And it's a longer term formula, but it's this. It's what I call say-do. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And I do it when I said I was going to do it. And if you do that a minimum of three times and you do it over and over again, you are proving to the other person that you are trustworthy. 
But how many times has somebody said they were going to do something for you and they didn't come through? What did you think of that person as a person? A very important influential moment, I think, that people have trouble with is when they have to deliver bad news. Because how you deliver the bad news can have a big influence on how people receive the bad news. And, and nobody likes to give bad news. I developed something called the bad news formula. And it's a way of, uh, of decreasing the emotional upset on both sides when you have to tell somebody something they really don't want to hear. And the bad news formula starts with the bad news. So you're talking to a person, you know, make sure, you know, you're sitting in a place or you're or on the phone and, and you're both comfortable with each other. And the formula goes like this. I'll do the formula and then I'll do an example. The bad news formula is bad news. And then you use the word but. The word but's quite important because it tells the person that something different is going to happen. So bad news, but good news for the other person and good news and good news. And, of course, the first objection to the bad news formula is, what do you do if you don't have any good news? Well, you have to find some. So bad news is what I can't do for you, but, and then you propose something that goes some way towards doing something for the other person or another solution. And I was thinking, you know, the bad news formula is very, very effective. And someone used it on me, and I couldn't believe it. I had done a huge contract for a software company on managing customer expectations. I went all over the States and then down to their headquarters in New Zealand. And three months later, um, I hadn't received my check. So I emailed one of the people in payables who had taken my training. I knew everybody in the company. And I said to him, hey, George, I haven't received my check yet. Can you look into it for me? And then I got back an email and George said, dear Shelley, I know you haven't gotten your check yet, but... I will be seeing the VP of finance this week and I'll be putting your bill in front of him and I'll let you know just as soon as I hear. And so I went, it was in my office by myself and went, oh, okay, wait a minute. And <laughs> I realized after what he'd done. So I wrote him back a note and said, I taught you how to do that. And he wrote back with a smiley face. So, I mean, even if you know about this, it still works. And the idea is you start with the bad news. That is, creates trust and credibility. You're not hiding stuff from people. And then you talk about and the bad news, but a piece of good news or what you're going to do or what might be helpful and another piece of good news and another piece. The reason it works is three to one. Now, what most people are used to doing and hearing is the infamous sandwich where you say something nice and then you stick the bad news in or the criticism in the middle and then you say something nice and most people feel really manipulated by that and secondly the really bad thing that this sandwich has done to everybody as soon as you hear a compliment most people start psychologically ducking because they know a criticism or a piece of bad news is coming right after that so uh, my suggestion for handing out compliments would be run into somebody's office Give them a compliment, say very quickly why it was helpful, whatever they did, and then leave or hang up the phone. Because if you stay there, because we've been so programmed by the sandwich, they're going to think, oh, you're just buttering me up for some kind of criticism, and they'll be waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I suggest you separate it. You need to have a compliment or you're uh, really impressed with something that someone has done or said. You say that and leave. So what's left hanging in the air is the compliment. And if you have a critique to make, the best way to use to do it, in my opinion, would be to use the bad news formula. 
And, and that's how you influence better relationships. Here's a question, because uh, I think a lot of times people would like to try to influence certain people, but we can't get a hold of them. We can't get them on the phone. They won't call us back. Do you have a, a good way to get people to return a phone call? A lot of people have this problem as they've talked to somebody, maybe it's a potential customer or it's somebody you're working with on a project and you've called them and they don't call you back and you've called them a couple times, they still don't call you back. Well, the problem is people are really busy. And so what I suggest is to kind of change the tone a bit. So one way of getting somebody to call you back is to tell them you have an idea that you'd like to run by them about the thing they're working on. So you know that problem we talked about last week, I've got an idea that just might work and I'd like to run it by you. Can you give me a call, please? And you always call when you know they're not going to be there so that you can leave that message. Well, that creates some curiosity and the person is more likely to call you back. Another technique for getting them to call you back is this is like bringing out the big solution. I would do it rarely is that sometimes um, people are too busy, but you end up thinking, you know, I must have hurt their feelings or I must have insulted them. And again, phone them up when they're not going to be there or when they're unlikely to answer their phone, which is most of the time nowadays. And, and say, listen, you know, we talked about moving forward on this project, and I called a couple times, and, and I haven't heard back from you. I'm wondering if I said something or did something that offended you. And I'm not sure what it is. I'm just feeling a little uh, antsy about this, and I'm very sorry. Um, I didn't mean to do anything to offend you. And while most people will email you back, you can even do that in email, and say, no, no, I didn't get back to you. I'm really, really sorry. And then you can continue from there. But getting traction is one of the one of the challenges today because people have got so much to do. They're so overwhelmed with everything they have to do. But sometimes you need to have some mechanisms to get people to get back in touch with you. Well, it's so interesting to hear this because with all the miscommunication that goes on in the world, it's good to get some tools to use to improve our ability to communicate and influence. And I appreciate you sharing all this. Shelley Rose Chavre has been my guest. She's an expert on influence and persuasion and author of the book, Words That Change Minds. You'll find a link to her book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Shelley. Thanks, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You have a very important and somewhat intimate relationship with food. And I suspect you have questions you've always wondered about food. Like, why does pasta always seem to taste better in a restaurant than it does at home? Or what are the secrets to making a great hamburger? Or 
or are onions all really pretty much the same, or are purple onions all that different from yellow ones? Well, here with some great answers and insight into the food you love to eat is Daniel Holzman. Daniel is a chef, a food writer, and author of the book, Food IQ. Hey, Daniel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. So let's start with that question about pasta, because I think a lot of people would say that as good as mom or grandma's pasta is, it often does seem that pasta tastes better in a restaurant. So why is that? When my, when my mom, my mom's a great cook and I love her, um, but when she would make pasta at home, um, we would cook the pasta and then you dump the sauce over the top. But in a restaurant, you know, we cook the pasta and then we finish the pasta with the sauce in a pan. So you, you, you put the, the sauce in a pan, you heat it up. And when the pasta is about one minute before it's done, you pull it out of the water and you add it to the sauce. You cook it together. The pasta absorbs the sauce. You can cook it perfectly because you, you got that you know, last minute of cooking time while you're tasting it to make sure it's exactly where you want it to be. And then there's this magic thing that happens where the starch from the pasta helps to emulsify the fats or the oils in the pasta sauce, and it comes together to really perfectly coat the, coat the pasta. It's, it's really special to see. And that's the step that's missing at home for folks. Yeah, because that's how my mom used to cook it, too. She would just pile the sauce on top of the pasta and then put a little, you know, Kraft Parmesan cheese on it and say, here you go. That Kraft Parmesan cheese is, is, uh, is delicious. <laughs> the reality is it's just delicious. Anybody that says it's not delicious is, is just being pretentious. It's great. <laughs> really? Really? You think that that's great Parmesan cheese? I think that, you know, I've eaten, you know, 48-month-aged, super fancy DOP, Parmigiano-Reggiano, straight from the source, and I've had um, everything down to, yeah, that little green top bottle that you shake on top of sauce. I think that all Parmesan cheese ends up being delicious, and some of it um, is a little bit better than others. No question about it. But you you don't think that it's object. Forgetting knowing whether Parmesan cheese is great quality or not, or any of the other kind of like caveats you might put on it. Just objectively speaking, is or is not Kraft Parmesan cheese, when you take a spoonful of it, delicious? Yeah, delicious. Is salt salt? Does it matter? So, you know, salt is salt and it doesn't matter except for how you use it matters. When people at home, when you're, when you're not happy with their home cooking, it's 99% because they, they didn't season it properly. And that comes from either being scared of over-seasoning it or not understanding, but what what we what we've seen is you know there are a couple of big brands of salt out there, um, Diamond Crystal and Morton's and you know you get that iodized stuff that you see for table salt. And if you were to weigh the salt and then dissolve it in water, it has the same level of salinity no matter what. So it's like the same saltiness, but some of the grains are bigger. So if you were to take a pinch of that salt um, and weigh the three different types or four different types of salt pinches, you'd end up realizing that um, your pinch adds a different amount of salt depending upon what size of salt crystal you're using. I know that's like, was that complicated and convoluted? Ultimately, what I'm saying is use the same type of salt. Whatever you choose to use, use it, use the same one. And in my opinion, you know, you should use the inexpensive one. But it does seem there are so many different kinds of salt now. There's, you know, lava salt and pink Himalayan salt, and, and it looks pretty. You know, that's the thing, is that if you want to finish a sliced fish crudo with pink salt or black lava salt or, you know, it looks cool. 
And maybe the texture of it gives it a certain crunch. So absolutely use it. But if you're just seasoning pasta water, you're wasting your money putting anything other than kosher salt in there. Tell me how to make the best grilled cheese sandwich ever. When we, when we, when we were writing this cookbook, I was making a lot of grilled cheese because it was during the pandemic. I was stuck at home a lot. And if you toast the inside of the bread, something special happens. So I, I take some, a pat of butter, you put it in the pan, you put the bread, uh, two slices of bread in there and you toast it until it's golden brown. And then you flip them over, add the cheese. And what winds up happening is you're toasted on both sides. The cheese melts faster and more evenly. Um, some of the, if you do it in a nonstick pan, some of the cheese pours over the edge and crisps up in the pan in a special way. So I think toasting both sides of the bread with butter in the pan is the je ne sais quoi we're looking for. Let's talk about onions, because as you know, when you go into the store, there's all kinds of onions. There's uh, Spanish onions, there's red or purple onions, there's sweet onions, there's boiling onions. Does it really matter? Is there really that big a difference in between the different varieties of onions or, or not? The short answer is it doesn't make a ton of difference. And I feel like, you know, that's there, cooking is intimidating because there are so many choices. Um, the three onions or the four onions that we see commonly in a supermarket can be swapped out. But, you know, they do offer certain advantages. Obviously, purple onions are, are purple. So they, 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 their color can bleed and it can stain other things. Or they can look really beautiful if you're, you know, pickling them and putting them in a salad. If you're going to caramelize your onions for a long time, the reality is that all of them have a similar, um, a similar flavor profile. Some of them are labeled sweet but that's because they're, they taste apparently sweet. They don't actually have more sugar. They just have less sulfur, which is the kind of biting sharpness that an onion uh, offers. If you're going to cook them for a long time, they have really similar properties. Some of them are a little bit more structurally um, uh, well put together. So a purple onion might hold up under long caramelization, whereas those sweet Maui onions tend to melt away into a, um, uh, so you don't, you don't really maintain any of the texture. For the most part, if you're just starting out, grab any onion and it'll work. The yellow onion, the Spanish onion is kind of my go-to workhorse. You can choose that and it'll work for everything. When it comes to cooking with oil, certainly uh, olive oil has won the PR contest. You know, olive oil is like the, the premium oil and, and it can get very expensive. So are, are you better off cooking in a pan with really expensive olive oil or can you use a cheaper oil? especially for olive oil and with a lot of ingredients the the most expensive one has unique qualities that don't make it the best for everything so with olive oil specifically you know as the yield of the olive oil um because they press all you know the olives under you know high pressure and they extract the oil as the yield goes down you get more pungent flavor can be very very bitter very spicy very fruity um and those olive oils are quite expensive they're really meant to be finishing oils, you know, like a seasoning that you would pour a little bit on top of the soup. Um, whereas the, you know, higher extraction oils have a much, much lighter flavor. Um, and those are the ones we want to reach for, for sauteing or, or for salad dressings. A really pungent, high, highly flavored oil can be, can, can clash with lemon or acid in a salad dressing can be very, very bitter, un, unappealing. Um, and the, the flavor is really lost when you're sauteing. So it's really just a waste. What about, though, there's canola oil, vegetable oil, walnut oil, peanut oil? Uh, what, what's, what's corn oil? So all of those vegetable oils, peanut, walnut, corn, you know, well, walnut may be a little bit different, but all those, the vegetable oils, the classic ones that you see in the, you know, 
yellow tinted, clearish uh, looking liquid in the supermarket that come in big old jugs are interchangeable. Um, certain ones have specific qualities like, you know, they say grape seed oil specifically, you know, it has a neutral flavor, but it has a high smoke point, which means that um, it burns at a higher temperature. So that, you know, if you really want to sear something really hot in the pan, it, it has a quality that might work better for that. But ultimately, all of the neutral flavored olive oils are interchangeable. I think everybody who cooks always feels a little like when they use the microwave, they're kind of cheating. They're like, yeah, it's not, it's not really cooking. It's like nuking. And what's your take on microwaving? And, and do people use it correctly? The microwave is an awesome tool. You know, it heats up the water inside food. So it's great for any application where you might steam or, or gently poach a, a food. Like poached fish in a microwave works really, really well. It's not just for heating or thawing. Um, bacon, we all know about cooking bacon in the microwave. It can be really great. Although if you burn it, it's a disaster. So the microwave is a great tool. It's just a matter of trying to understand what's really going on so we don't use it for the wrong application. Like you know, people are like, oh, I put a piece of pizza in there and it tasted soggy. It's like, well, you know, if you steamed a piece of pizza, how crispy would you imagine it was going to get, right? So you know, for certain things, it's an absolute no-go. But for many applications, it can be a... I love baking potatoes in the microwave. You know, it takes 15 minutes to bake a perfect potato in the microwave. That's one of my favorite um, favorite applications because otherwise it's an hour. Who has time for an hour for a baked potato? So tell me how to make the perfect scrambled egg. I think that folks uh, tend to be in a rush when they make their scrambled eggs. When you learn to make scrambled eggs in a, in a French fantasy kitchen, you cook them very low and very slow. And the difference could be like, 20 seconds or one minute. So we're not talking about taking an hour to scramble an egg. We're just talking about using a low flame, little extra butter and very slowly cooking it um, while mixing it continuously. Rubber spatula works great. Um, and it gives it this really delicious texture. Do you use butter? I'm a big butter guy. And I think, look, there are certain applications where butter is a lubricant, um, but for the most part, Butter is an ingredient that's adding flavor. And if you're going to do, you're, if you're going to use butter, you should use a good quality butter, especially with something like scrambled eggs. I mean, the fewer ingredients you use, the more important the individual ingredients are. So for scrambled eggs, it might just be butter, salt, black pepper, and eggs. So, you know, any of those ingredients are going to matter. And the butter is a, is a big one. So use a good quality butter. So we have an Instapot we got not long ago, and it sat on the counter for a while, and now we use it all the time. My wife loves the Instapot. The results are, it's kind of the anti-microwave. You can cook things in it fast and it, it crisps things up. And what's your, what's your sense of the Instapot? What happened to me was we were writing Food IQ and Matt brought up, what about the Instapot? And I thought, I just put my nose up to it. I just think as I'm a chef, the Instapot is embarrassment, but I had never um, actually used one. So I got myself an Instapot. And lo and behold, like most things in life, when you actually uh, try to understand them, you gain a great appreciation for them. What an amazing tool. I mean, it's a pressure cooker that has the ability to choose the heat more scientifically than just, you know, close the top and stick it on the flame and, and pray. 
Um, you can choose your time. It works great as a rice cooker. Um, it works great for, you know, anything, any application of pressure cooker you would use for, um, you know, the saute function, the idea of keeping the top open and caramelizing before you cook isn't something that I use it for, although I can understand why it is um, useful or helpful for other folks. Um, but I think the Instant Pot's a great pressure cooker. I love it. I use it fairly. I love it for cooking beans, you know, something where you got to soak beans, but you know, overnight. So you can't really serve beans on the fly if you just want to whip up dinner in 45 minutes. But if you have a pressure cooker or an Instant Pot in this case, um, you can and that's a great advantage. What's your secret, if there is one, for the best hamburger? This is a, like the greatest question. Like the hamburger is un- undoubtedly the greatest sandwich in the world. Everybody agrees. Even if you don't agree, it's because you're wrong, um, because you don't uh, agree that a hamburger is a sandwich. But by definition, we could we could dive really deeply into this. Ultimately, hamburgers are delicious. For me, the most important piece of the puzzle is obviously the quality of the meat and the balance of ingredients. We have a smash burger in this in this cookbook that it just steals my heart every time I make it. It's like a jaw dropper, no ketchup needed, extremely moist. Um, Oklahoma smash burger, basically, you you salt the onions, which pulls some moisture out, and then throw them on a hot griddle with oil until they're almost completely burnt. Throw the uh, round burger puck on top and then smash it down so it kind of like crushes into the onions and starts to cook flip it with the onions on top a piece of american cheese just to melt and this is a double double burger on a soft bun it's so spectacular um i crave them i crave them that sounds tasty it's so good (laughs) what do you think when you watch other people or see other people cook burgers what what's the big mistake they make I feel like people don't account for shrinkage in a burger. You know, you, you, you make the burger the size you think you want it to be. Then you put it on the grill or the griddle or uh, on, in your pan and it shrinks down. And then all of a sudden you got this bun that's, you know, seven inches and you got a five inch burger. And it just, you know, obviously the other piece of the puzzle is I think people undervalue the quality of the bun and the other ingredients. It's not just a meat puck, you know, so make your burger. 20% bigger than you want it to end up being because it's going to shrink 21, 20%. And then concentrate on what you're putting on there. It, this is not like a circus plate. It's not a matter of how much stuff I can get on there. It's a matter of picking quality things that go well together. Stick with the theme. So let's discuss fresh versus frozen, whether it's meat or vegetables or whatever. What Are there pros and cons? Are there right ways and wrong ways? Uh, dive into this. The frozen vegetables you get in the supermarket today are not your grandmother's frozen vegetables. There have been huge scientific advances in the way that the, in the technology that goes into these um, uh, manufacturing processes, they're picking these vegetables at the height of freshness and often um, uh, locking in their quality. We made an uh, asparagus risotto that was so crispy and fresh tasting. So would I make frozen asparagus risotto for my friends and family as a chef guy, I probably might not choose that, but did I think it was very delicious and would I be ashamed to serve it? Absolutely not. It does seem that there are some vegetables though, that maybe cause like frozen broccoli, I can spot it a mile away. Yeah. I wonder whether you spot the frozen broccoli because it's just like the type of person that 
um, I don't want to say like lazy, but the type of person that, you know, is, is time challenged so that they're reaching for the frozen broccoli that's pre-cut might also be the type of person that isn't going to take the time to roast it really carefully or prepare some. So they just kind of like heat it up and serve it as it is. But I wonder, and this would be a great, you know, you could do the Folgers challenge for yourself, like get some frozen broccoli and dress it up and see if then you can spot it from a mile away. I was shocked. I mean, frozen fish is another one. So I basically spent an entire year cooking frozen fish from Whole Foods and Costco and picking these frozen fish out of the supermarket. And are they, are they equivalent to fresh fish? No, they're different. They're a different ingredient. But are they a bad ingredient? No, they're great ingredients. So the thing is, it's a matter of saying these are great ingredients, but you need to know how to use them. Um, because if you try to saute a piece of frozen cod, you might be un- underwhelmed with the results. Um, however, if you if you if you poach it and you serve it with a with the right kind of sauce, it can be extraordinary. As a, an experienced chef, like what is the one piece of kitchen equipment, one piece of gear that? probably I don't have in my kitchen that you think would make a difference. If you buy yourself a digital scale, they're like, you know, you can get one for 10 bucks on Amazon or whatever your, you know, online retailer is. You'll be doing yourself a great favor. If you can weigh things by gram with a scale, you can season perfectly. So 1% of the weight of something is how much salt basically seasons the thing perfectly. So, you know, when you say I'm cooking this steak, how much salt should I put on to make it great? The answer is put it on the scale. And if your steak weighs 200 grams, right, you put two grams of salt and it's going to be perfect. So that I think is a really big, that's a big piece of the puzzle that, that if folks followed, they just increase the quality of their food tenfold. What about how to tell meat when you don't have a meat thermometer? How do you tell when it's done? You know what I actually, how, how I really learned to do it was you take, a, you take a skewer, a metal skewer, and you stick it through the meat all the way through the, the thickest part. And you put your finger right on the skewer where it's touching the meat and you pull it out. So you can tell where the center of the meat is and you, you hold it to your lower lip. And if it burns, it's overcooked. If you burn your, 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 you, you get an extra punishment for overcooking the meat. If it's cold, it's raw. If it's just barely tepid, it's rare. If it's starting to get warm, it's medium. And if it's a little bit hot, it's medium well. And that is a foolproof cooking um, uh, meat, meat temperature technique. You know, the thermometer thing is so challenging because depending upon where you, you know, the tip of the thermometer is what reads the temperature. If you put it in too far, it can, it can look like it's fully cooked. But that's because you've, you've pushed it through the center to the other side, which is hotter, um, and the center might still be undercooked. Um, and then there, there's a lot of question about what temperature should it actually be. So, like, you know, you look in the, at the, the guidelines from the FDA, and it's like, cook your chicken. And you know, when, that little, when that, little, that little turkey popper on your turkey pops out at Thanksgiving, you know, saying your turkey's done, that's like the, the liability police saying – you know, no matter what happens, this thing is so well cooked that no one's going to sue us for getting sick. Not this is the most delicious, moistest, you know, cooking temperature. So I think there's a lot of overcooking going on because people are following guidelines that are really meant to prevent health issues or really cover people's butts from getting people sick rather than what's the right temperature to cook it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, there's a difference between cooking for taste and flavor versus cooking for safety, food safety. And 
And in, in, in terms of cooking time, it can be a fine line between those two, but, but I, I get what you're saying. My guest has been Daniel Holzman. He is co-author, along with Matt Rodbard, of a book called Food IQ. And you'll find a link to his book in the show notes. Appreciate it, uh, Daniel. Thanks for coming on Something You Should Know. I'm a big, big fan, and I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm so thankful for your support and having us on. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. I know there are a lot of people who still have old vinyl records laying around the house. And if you're one of those people, there's a very effective way to clean those records and make them sound better. And you may also make them more valuable as collectibles in the process. And the way you clean them is with wood glue. Yeah, wood glue. You basically make a mask of wood glue to cover the record, then you peel it off after it dries. And when you peel it off, it takes with it all the dirt that's stuck in the grooves. There are a couple of excellent videos on how to do this on YouTube. You just search the terms clean, LP, and wood glue, and those videos will come up in the search. So how does it work? Well, Wood glue and the material that albums are made from are so chemically similar that the glue cannot bind to the record. It can, however, bind to everything else on the record, including oil, dust, dirt, fungus, crayons, cookie crumbs, whatever you spilled on your record. You're essentially giving your record a spa wax and ripping off all the impurities with the glue. You may want to test it out on an old record you don't care about first, But this does seem to be a very effective technique. And that is something you should know. If you like this episode, help us spread the word and tell someone you know to give this podcast a listen. Pretty much everybody now knows how to listen to a podcast, and I know you know somebody who would enjoy it. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.